As Gil already mentioned to you, for this retreat, we're going to be utilizing this framework of, of what's called the seven stages of purification. And these seven stages of pur purification, to me, the feeling sense I get from it is it's just a description of this journey that we're on together on this retreat. And on a, in, a, in a bigger frame, the journey of this path and this practice. And what I'd like to do this afternoon is just share with you more about this journey that we're on and a little bit of an overview of some possible ways of, of holding these teachings on the seven stages of purification. And the way I'd like to begin is uh, really to begin, I think, in a way that's a, a very helpful way of beginning a journey, and that's to lead with our hearts and one of the ways that I lead with my heart on retreat is to make sure that when I begin re retreat is that I'm beginning with this quality of honoring. This is what I love about chanting the refuges and the precepts, that first word, namo. Namo comes from a Pali verb, which I cannot remember right now, maybe namati, which uh, means uh, literally to bow down, to, to bow down this act of honoring that which deserves honoring. And when I honor in a skillful way, it does open the heart a lot of times around gratitude. So what to honor? And really, I just want to share with you some of the things that fit for me, and then you're going to have to get a sense of what fits for you of, of how to begin this journey and beginning it somehow with this quality of honoring. It could be possibly honoring all of those in this IMC, IRC community that's actually made it possible for us to be here. Isn't it a beautiful thing to know that we're sitting, we're literally sitting on the gratitude of others. This is one of the things that I love about coming to IRC is that that's what this is based on. So different from other retreat centers. It's, it's the, the basis of this. And what a beautiful thing to bring into our hearts that, that, that we're here because of the generosity of others. And you could say even underneath that is to honor this land that we're on. The gratitude for being able to be on this land. And maybe honoring also you know, the people who came before us, the Awaswas tribe, who actually this was the land that they inhabited before colonization. Something that we can so easily forget about the people who came before us on this land. It's kind of one of the dynamics of colonization is to actually forget to forget the honoring of the land and the honoring of the people who came before us. What a beautiful thing to bring into our hearts to, to lead a retreat, leading a retreat with this quality of heart. And then uh, Gil and I have been sharing with you this lineage of practitioners who've brought us this particular practice that we're going to be exploring this you could say this Mahasi lineage not only from Mahasi Sayadaw but from his teacher Mingun Sayadaw and then 
the, the line of practitioners before Mahasi Sayadaw. And Mingun Sayadaw, the, the, the teacher of Mahasi Sayadaw, said that he came from uh, this particular place in Burma, which I find striking, the Sagain Hills. And uh, this place in Burma is, is really, you could say, quite a sacred place because the, the, the feeling is, that at least the history from practitioners, is that it's, it's in the Sagain Hills that for hundreds and hundreds of years there's been monastics practicing called, usually what they're called is uh, Patipati monks. There's Pariyati monks and Patipati monks. Pariyati monastics are ones that are more scholarly, and Patipati monastics are ones that are really dedicated just to the practice. Of course, there can be a combination. And many people feel it's from those hills and the, the practice that went on in those hills and in those caves that brought us the Vipassana that we, we practice today. What a beautiful thing to honor all those practitioners. And for me, when I was reflecting on this, I realized just a, a couple days ago, I received an email from an old friend who introduced me to this practice. Actually, he was in Kathmandu and sending the email. So it was, he's been going to practice in, in uh, Nepal with Saida Uvivakananda for I think the last 19 years, usually three months, three to six months every year um, on retreat. So he's basically a semi-monastic life. And I remember I had just, um, I kind of left the whole Zen monk thing and I was living in Silver City, New Mexico and there was a group of people there that w were uh, students of Saida Upandita. And they were, uh, encouraging me. I actually, I think encouragement is, the, is a light word. I found them to be kind of pushy <laughs> in their <laughs> insistence that if I wanted to practice, I should go practice with Saida Upandita um, and to do so quickly. Who knows what's going to happen? And I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful that they were in my life at that, at that stage. It was really my introduction to Vipassana. So much so that I realized that um, it kind of gave me a skewed understanding of Vipassana. I remember I'd practiced with Saida Upandita. I'd maybe done a, a few retreats with him. And I went and did a retreat with Shinzen Young. Some of you might know Shinzen Young, who also I'm really grateful for because he used to interpret for uh, the Zen master I used to practice with, but also taught kind of this Vipassana mixture. So he was a wonderful bridge for me. And so I went on this retreat and um, I really didn't know how to have, this is a little embarrassing, how to have an interview with a teacher. You know, I only practice side open Dito, and there's this very strict way of reporting when you're in interview. So I remember having my first interview with Shinzen, so I just used that. And so here I am, I don't know if anybody's practiced side open Dito, but using that reporting style, which you have to kind of report like in this very systematic way. For example, you would say something like, the rising of the abdomen occurred. And then the second thing, I noted it as rising. <laughs> I noticed, what did I notice? I noticed pressure and stretching. They increased, they increased until the end. Falling of the abdomen occurred. I noted it as falling. <laughs> I kind of kept on going on with this kind of reporting. And I think Shinsen, trying to be polite, finally said, you know, Brian, you know, it, 
and luckily in Brack Society of Candida, kind of, you can report like that, but, you know, we could just have a conversation like normal people about your practice as well. <laughs> and that was my um, introduction to maybe a little bit normal way of learning how to try to talk to a teacher. But I want to point out that that style of practice, even that style of reporting, what it gave me in my practice, and of course I, my, my understanding of Vipassana practice really broadened from that, was a kind of precision and a real attention to detail that, that opened up the practice for me in really profound ways. Um, and we'll, I think Gil and I will probably be getting into that more and more, the kind of precision that we can start to engage in in a relaxed way, in an easeful way. So back to these seven stages of purification. They come from a discourse. There's, a, there's only one discourse in the, in the Pali discourses that talks about these seven stages of purification. There's, there's another discourse that talks about nine stages, but just one of these seven stages of purification. And it arises out of this um, conversation that these two monastics are having, the, the Venerable Sariputta having a conversation with the Venerable uh, uh, Puna. And then there's this, this image. There's this image of King Pasanadi, King, uh, uh, King Pasanadi of Kosala. And I think it's uh, the Venerable, Venerable uh, Puna that gives it. Is, is he goes, for example, here we have uh, King Pasanadi, and here he's in um, the inner palace gate, the inner palace of Kosala. And what does he do? He gets into one chariot and rides along to the second chariot and then he gets into the second chariot until the second chariot takes him on to the third chariot and so on and so forth until he gets into the seventh chariot and that seventh chariot takes him to another palace the palace of Seketa, and allows them him to arrive into that inner palace where his relatives and his friends and his family are there and then as these analogies go in just the same way this is the unfolding of the practice where we go from these different stages of purification, the purification of, of virtue, the purification of mind, the purification of view, the purification of doubt, the purification by knowledge and vision of what is and what is not the path, the purification by knowledge and vision of the way, and then the purification, the final one, of this vision of knowledge. And I know it's a kind of a, another long list with obscure terms, but hopefully we'll bring some kind of clarity and relate it to what we're doing here on retreat. What I want to point out about this image, at least what, what this image evokes for me that's so important in this practice is that um, chariots carry me along. And my job is to allow myself to be carried along by the chariots of this path and this practice. So for me, the essential word that, that's arisen out of doing so much Mahasi practice and really out of my struggles and mistakes and my own neurosis is, is so much striving and trying to become somebody 
And so the big word really for me was surrender, to surrender, to allow myself to follow the Dharma. And I invite you to have that quality of whatever we're sharing with you, of, of allowing yourself to be carried along by these chariots. And then what happens, especially in, in the kind of the Mahasi method is that these seven stages of purification get further synthesized. They get further systematized because they're, they're, you have to remember uh, so much in Burma, they're, they're really not only into the Buddha, they're really into Buddha Gosa, who is the author of the Vasudhimaga and also Abhidhamma. So they love lists and systems. And then what gets pasted on this, especially in this commentary of the Vasudhimaga, are these 16 stages of the progress of insight. Another big list. <laughs> yeah. It's just so funny that I got interested in this practice because lists are really difficult for me and numbers and things like that. But what I want to point out about either these seven stages of, these, uh, of purification or these 16 stages of the progress of insight, which are enfolded in these, these stages of purification, is that they're just a description of the unfolding of this path. You could say they're just a map. And I want to point out the, the shadow side of descriptions and the shadow side of maps, because I think this is, this is important, not only about this retreat, but uh, retreats after this, when we come upon such things. And I, what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you um, a quote from another, what I'd call kind of obsessive map maker. Some of you might know him, Ken Wilber, who loves to make maps endlessly. And he says something about his books, which are really just maps that I, I find striking in this context. He says, please remember, all of my books are lies. They are simply maps of a territory, shadows of a reality, gray symbols dragging their bellies across the dead page, suffocated signs full of muffled sound and faded glory, signifying absolutely nothing. And it is the nothing, the mystery, the emptiness alone that needs to be realized, not known but felt, not thought but breathed, not an object but an atmosphere, not a lesson, but a life. So I offer this as an invitation that, that what I share, and, and maybe I can talk for Gil, maybe what he shares, we hope that it, it's more about uh, feeling it and breathing it, a taste of something, the atmosphere of what we're trying to point to, but so, so different than these descriptions. What I, what I bring to mind is, think of when you use a map and how much of that map corresponds to the territory that you're going through. Like when you have the, the Google Maps, you're driving down the road, so 99.999999% of what you see out there is not on the map. <laughs> and that's important to remember because so often I know I have a mind that wants to understand, that wants to have description as my, my safety net. 
But what you're going to be experiencing on this retreat is so much more varied, so richer and deeper than anything that we can put into words. And yet, and yet I have found what I've gained from my teachers in terms of these descriptions really helpful because it sometimes helps clarify what I'm experiencing, sheds a light on some things that I'm missing. So I think this is the intention of it. And some of this, this, this system is, the, these systems or this systematization that happened around these seven stages of purification, this is the way I imagine it unfolded. Is, and, and, and you can see this in a lot of these commentaries, the, the Patisambhita Magga, this, uh, another commentary, the Path of Discrimination, or the Vimuti Magga, the Path of Liberation is there are these descriptions of these flavors of insight that we gain on this path. And what I imagine are these practitioners that are just practicing like we are here on this retreat in some kind of manner. And they come across these, this terrain of the path and the practice that has a certain quality to it that they then write down. And then, then there starts to be that collected in a way, and then that starts to get systematized. But the basis of it is really what we're doing here. And then there's just practitioners and monastics that write that down. And then what happens is that it gets codified and then it's made into a religion. And then if your practice doesn't fit into that, then you feel like you don't belong. <laughs> All those horrible things that can sometimes come with an unskillful use of tradition. And I, I want to uh, offer just a, also a caveat to what I'm sharing here too. The, the, the big phrase that I used right here is uh, the way I imagine it. And I, I like to point this out when I begin a retreat of a little bit of what I'm doing up here when I'm sharing things with you. And I, I think it's important to pull back the curtain uh, around this. is that when I share with you, there's a, there are these, all these conditions that have come together that has shaped the descriptions and, and uh, the explanations I'm giving to you. And some of it is my interface with this tradition, but it's also uh, influenced by, you could say, again, how I'm socially located. Because those are some of the conditions that have shaped this mind. You know, there could be the, the, the general things of uh, growing up white, Seeing, being seen as white in this society, being male, heterosexual, being educated, and, and the list goes on. Being raised in a Catholic family that valued liberation theology, practicing Zen, you know, living in a Zen center, Zen monastery for six years, and probably a whole host of other conditions that has shaped this mind. And I say this just so that you know that what I share, some of your job is to see how you're gonna translate what I share into something that's effective for you, that works for you, which is a dance, isn't it? This is what I found, it's a dance because part of it is, is I'm trying to honor a tradition that is leading this heart and mind to awakening, 
that often goes against the grain of what I like and what I don't like. And at the same time, I need to find a place within that tradition for me and how I'm situated. And this is one of the struggles that I had when I was practicing with Sayadaw Upandita, a, a teacher that I'm uh, deeply grateful for. But also there was struggle practicing with him and the, the two main teachers and also Sayadaw Upivakananda. And some of that because for me, some of the language, Sayadaw Upandita's language of heroic effort, just translated into me, for me, of just serious striving. <laughs> And then played into this attempt to become, to become not a horrible person anymore. And it really was just a recapitulation of really unskillful ways of relating to myself that didn't go anywhere. So I needed to take that practice and then I needed to translate it for myself. I had to come up with this word. I had to see that the essential word was surrender. Like I was just looking back at one of my notebooks that it must have been 15 years ago that I wrote into it, and I remember th I saw in there the word surrender kind of circled many times from my own struggles. And that was an important part of the process. And it might be the same for you here of, of how do you listen and hear this tradition, but in a way that's going to be affected for your, effective for your particular heart and mind. So how to uh, take the next few steps with what we're sharing here. Again, just a, a broader framework. We'll be getting much more into these seven stages of pur purification in the following days. Yeah, so the question, how to continue to begin? And again, I'd like to share another story. This is... Uh, I remember making a phone call before I went to Burma to practice with Saida Ubandita. Um, and I'd already done a retreat or two with them, but I was, well, truth be told, I was really nervous. <laughs> I was nervous of spending uh, three months in practicing in Burma with Saida Ubandita, even though I had a lot of respect for him. At that point in my practice, he wasn't a warm and fuzzy kind of teacher. <laughs> And so I called up a friend and I asked him, can you give me some advice about how I should practice in Burma to really, I think I was looking just to survive, <laughs> to make it through this. I had this aspiration, but I was nervous. And uh, I appreciated his, his, uh, his advice. He said, so Brian, what you're going to do is when you get there, you're going you're gonna to sit and then you're going to walk and then you're going to sit and then you're going to walk and then you maybe have a meal and then you're going to do some more sitting and then some more walking. And you might have some juice in the evening. And then you'll probably do a little more sitting and some more walking. Really, that's about all you need to do. And I remember on retreat coming back to that. Because I have this mind that loves to compl complicate the practice. And it's so simple. It's just about noticing. Noticing what's going on in this very moment. We've given you these preliminary ways of framing it, having an anchor, something uh, off, often something based in the body, like the, the sensations associated with breathing. 
or the bottoms of the feet. When the mind, when there's something else compelling that arises in experience, oh, noticing that, being aware of that. And at times making sure to check in with the attitude of the mind. How is the mind relating to, to this practice and what's going on right now? That's, that's what sitting and walking is about, right? Okay, you do a little bit of eating, taking a shower, going to the bathroom. So simple. I loved coming back to that. Oh yeah, just what my friend said, just sit, just walk. And hopefully you're seeing, you know, the, the Mahasi approach has so deeply influenced Vipassana in this country that probably for most of you, what Gil and I have been sharing with you is not anything probably that radically new <laughs> of the way you've practiced. So for most of you, you're probably quite familiar with this and to trust your familiarity with it. And the other thing that I found helpful when he was saying just to sit and walk was also what was implied with this, and I might share a little bit more with this for the instruction tomorrow morning, is this quality of continuity. Just just that is, is the thing that I've noticed in my practice that makes this particular approach unfold in a, in a, uh, a really dramatic way. Is the, and what I mean by that is it's the simple willingness to be present moment after moment throughout the day. And the big word there, willingness, which is sweet. I don't even have to be present. I just have to have the willingness. Phew. That's what's required of me, just the willingness. And then, and then the chariots carry me along. And it's trusting those chariots. And I, w I want to deepen that sense of, of how to hold what we're going to be sharing and come back to this idea of this journey that we're on. And I'd like to c compare it to a, a journey that I usually take with my wife every year. We usually try to get out in the woods for a two-week stretch every year, especially in the wilderness. And often, you know, especially in the wilderness in the Southwest, like if you're in Colorado, a place like Colorado, you know, you start at a, a lower elevation, which is maybe high for here, maybe five, six, seven thousand feet. And then you gradually will hike up to maybe 10 or 12,000 feet. So you're, you're going up and the lower elevations are supporting the higher elevations. And this is one of the big things that, that the Venerable Puna was, was trying to uh, share. They were discussing with the Ver Venerable Sariputta is that how the first chariot sets the stage, it, it, it creates the foundation for the next stage, so that these, these are creating foundations that rise up to the highest elevations. We're in that high, high alpine area where we get those beautiful visions, a different view, a different perception of how things are. And it's wonderful, it's wonderful to hike up to these beautiful alpine zones above Timberline to, to really take in the support that those lower, lower elevation elevations bring. But truth be told, what makes the journey so special for us when we're there is not trying to get to the top in the Alpine area. It's just to soak in that field, that space of being in the wilderness. That's all we're there to do. If we're at a lower elevation, yeah. If we're at a higher elevation, we're not tracking that. So along those lines, and this comes with this theme of surrender, what's it like just to 
rest in this field of the Dharma that we're in. That's all you need to do to trust that, just to have the willingness to be present, because it's the willingness to be present that allows me to be on that chariot that carries me forward. My job isn't to try to make the chariot go faster or slower or to make sure it's going in the right direction. I just need to be on it, keeping it simple. There's another facet around these seven stages of purification that I, I want to make sure to mention because it's such a, a basis, especially for the Mahasi method, is, is the context within which it is held. And that's namely this context of awakening or freedom. When I practiced with Sayada Upandita or Sayada Uvivakananda, it was implied, it was just assumed that one is practicing for awakening. You know, and, and they're model, they're, they're very much into these four stages of awakening. It's, it's about at least stream entry, which is this first stage of awakening. And so that's just the assumption. And I want to share a little bit about uh, what it might be to hold awakening for ourselves. And again, this is a place where I think it's important to, to acknowledge a multiplicity of maybe how you relate to this because there can be so many different ways of relating to awakening, and I think it's important to allow for a multiplicity. And for me, what's been so important about liberation, really, again, to maybe translate a little bit, a, a heart that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion, is see that it's not just about me and my life. It goes much broader than that. And the Buddha in early Buddhism speaks to this. He gives this analogy. It's from the Firebrand Sutta. He says, just as from a cow comes milk, from milk curds, from curds butter, from butter ghee, and from ghee the skimmings of ghee, and of these the skimmings of ghee are reckoned the most refined, the foremost. And in the same way, the individual who practices for their own benefit and for the, that, that of others is the foremost, the most refined, the chief, the most outstanding, the highest, and the supreme. What would it be like to hold what you're doing here on this retreat in this context of practicing not only for yourself, but for others? This has been such an essential foundation for the practice that I do. That it's not just about me and my life, 
It's more about noticing how my liberation is intertwined with others and holding that. And I think it's important for the context within which we find ourselves. There's a Buddhist scholar, uh, C.W. Huntington, Sandy Huntington, who wrote this article. It's kind of an interesting article, but the title is great. <laughs> and he's giving a critique of, of much of modern Buddhism, and he calls it the triumph of narcissism, where there's a kind of a self-involvement, a kind of narcissistic self-involvement that can happen if we're situated as a modern, especially kind of in kind of white dominant modern society, there can be such a, a, a trend towards narcissism. And they say that the, the narcissistic tendencies are on the rise. No surprise. <laughs> and so in light of this, I, I, I feel it is important to have this quality to, to practice for uh, a, a having a broader sense of what we're doing here. And later on in Buddhism, this is this flowers into this this teaching of bodhicitta, this aspiration to practice for the benefit of all beings, and seeing that it's it's intertwined with the deepest realization. And I want to give a, a kind of a, a little of a modern account of a way of maybe holding a broader perspective of what we're doing here that might be helpful to you and intertwine it into something that at least in Burma was held to be a foundation of their understanding of awakening, which was rebirth. And I want to share a little bit about that and then some other ways of understanding that that might be, might be helpful to really honor a multiplicity. There might be people in the room where, where the understanding of rebirth is really central to the way you practice, and I want to make sure to honor that. And there might be other people in here that that doesn't fit at all. And is there room for a multiplicity of, of, of views around this? But just an example of this, I, I know a woman who was practicing with Saida Upandita, and she, there was a lot of momentum in her on her retreat and her practice, and she was on a long retreat, and she got news that her father was very close to death. And so she uh, went to Saida Upandita and let him know the news that she was gonna have to leave immediately. And basically what he said to her is, are you crazy? Don't leave now. You gotta stay on retreat. You're gonna leave because your father's dying? You should stay on retreat. And when I heard that, given how I was situated, I was thinking, that is lame. You know, here, you know, her father's dying, right? <laughs> she should go be with her father. This is so important. But I didn't understand at that time Saida Upandita's perspective. From his perspective, right, this person had been for for countless eons been been being reborn again and again and again into misery again and again and again. This is over lifetimes. Just, this is just a story about one father in her lifetime after all of these other lifetimes of losing parents and so much suffering. And here she had this opportunity to have this, this taste of awakening according to his framework 
that would make it so that she would be only reborn less than, you know, only seven lifetimes at most. That's for like, seven lifetimes is like for a lazy practitioner, you know, so. <laughs> so that's a guarantee of something that, that seemed to be so much grander than just this, this, this ephemeral relationship that probably was going to come back in another lifetime at some point. But for me, and I'll be honest with you, and, and my mind wavers about this, for me, it, that's not always emotionally compelling for me about what I'm doing on retreat. It doesn't have that emotional pull. And it, it, it's not to dissuade anyone that, that does have that emotional pull around that. And so I had to find a way of, of how to understand this sense of, of freedom, of bringing an end to rebirth that felt meaningful to me. So a couple stories about this and it might, don't worry, they'll fit together soon. <laughs> so another thing that I used to do, I don't do much of this now, is uh, uh, trauma work with individuals. And I was working with um, uh, th this woman who had been in, in many abusive relationships and there was this cycle that she was in around uh, really these cycles of violence. And through just kind of slowly working together and building this relationship, there was this really beautiful unfolding of healing that started to happen in her life. And as the healing started to happen, she began to realize that she was healing from a dynamic that stretched back in her line, in her lineage for in various forms for generations. And this feeling started to arise that she was beginning to stop a dynamic that went beyond her own life. And having these very striking views, really, especially considering how she was uh, socially located, of this, these dreams that she was having, of this uh, palpable inner sense of, of being visited by her ancestors and especially the women of her family. And the sense of seeing them in her dreams and seeing them, how proud they were and how grateful they were, really because of the healing that she was doing, because of the process that she was involved in. That she was, was having this healing that was extending way beyond her own small life. And it was putting an end, an end to a kind of rebirth that was happening. You know, as Chogyam Trungpa once said, when he was asked what gets reborn, he said, your bad habits. <laughs> and sometimes those are generational bad habits sometimes beyond our own family and our own lives, sometimes it's societal bad habits. What a beautiful thing to put an end to. And I feel the promise of freedom and awakening, however we taste it, whatever flavor we get, helps bring an end to 
such dynamics. And I think it gives new meaning to sometimes how the Buddha speaks about this. And I want to share with you this passage and maybe keeping this in mind, another way of imagining, of feeling into these teachings. As the Buddha says, he says, what do you think, bhikkhus, which is more, the stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This or the water in the four great oceans. And then the, the monastics say, as we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the stream of tears that we have shed as we roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. What a beautiful thing to put an end to, the kind of the intergenerational tears, the societal tears, to put an end to with our practice here that we're engaging in. This to me is the promise of freedom, the promise of awakening that goes beyond just my small little life. So how do I do this in a practical way? And again, you'll have to find something that is meaningful to you. For me, especially when I sit, but it can also be at the beginning of a walking meditation or the end of one, is, is I really put forth that intention. It's just, it's just a moment of the practice where, where I'll say, I begin to sit, may this go for, uh, practice go to the benefit of all beings. Or at the end, may the merit of this sit go to the benefit of all beings. And it's the repetition of that. It feels so like mundane. <laughs> and so simple, but it, it makes an impact, the repetition of that. I feel like it allows me to hold my life and my practice so differently in a broader context. In this way I can begin this journey, just as I was saying, with leading with the heart, but continuing the journey with leading in the heart in this way. So may this journey that we're on together on this retreat, may this practice uh, go to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Let's just uh, sit for a few moments here. <laughs> 